You're listening to the Bottom Line podcast where those living with or beyond bowel cancer, as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care, share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit all Australians really hard over the past two years, with our healthcare system experiencing enormous pressure. For cancer patients living in a pandemic, the overlay of COVID as they access their treatment has become a minefield. On this episode of the Bottom Line podcast, I chat with Nicole Cooper as she shares her insights and tips on how to navigate the healthcare system, not only in a pandemic, but in any situation. I'm sure you will agree, Nicole's journey after being diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer at the age of 32 is nothing short of remarkable. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us today on the Bottom Line podcast. Boy, what a year we've had, or a couple of years with the pandemic, and we'll get to that and some of your thoughts around how to access treatment during a pandemic. But I thought, first up, You've been navigating bowel cancer for over five years. Mm-hmm. We met some years ago when we did a press ad and your little boy was was a baby then. Mm-hmm. I thought, could you just give us a little snapshot of your bowel cancer journey? Of course. And thank you, Steph, so much for having me and to Bowel Cancer Australia, of course. It is such a pleasure to be here and to have this conversation. I have been battling stage four bowel cancer now for five years, will be five years in March 2022, uh, which is a bit of a a special moment, I guess, in the context of a stage four cancer and five-year statistics, right? Because that's the way we talk about um, bowel cancers. Absolutely. Yeah, metastatic Mm. cancers in particular. So I was diagnosed as a 32-year-old brand new mum. It was 2017. My son was eight months old and yeah, I was just having um, sort of symptoms of basically losing weight in a sort of post-pregnancy scenario um, and being really tired. And there was nothing really obviously bowel-y, if you like, that led to my um, diagnosis really. And um, when we found my cancer, it was really, really advanced. So it was all through my liver and evidently my lungs as well. And so when I was diagnosed, I was told by my first opinion that, you know, it was really, really tragic and there was not much we could do. And it was probably a palliative pathway that we were looking at. And I got a second opinion from an oncologist who said, nah, let's go for it. Let's see if we can um, try to shoot the lights out on this um, on this cancer experience. And, and so that's what we've done. And it has been a full-time patient experience for five years. So I've had, I don't know how many rounds of um, chemotherapy treatment, and that ranges from, you know, maintenance therapies all the way through to the um, harshest chemotherapies, you know, out there and available and immunotherapies as, as well. I've had, I don't know how many surgeries, I forget, I think it's 11, but I forget. Wow. So we, you know, when we had an initial response to chemotherapy, we had a, an opportunity in, in 2017 to do a liver resection and a bowel resection. And that liver resection was the liver resection I was told I would never have, that would never be operable. So that was an achievement. And I've had another one since then. And I've had six lung resections. Um, including two lobectomies. So if anyone knows about the architecture of the lung, there's there's five lobes in there that we have, and I've lost two of them, um, and then a couple of wedges and another 
bits and pieces of, of lung as well, and then a couple of ribs as well and a bit of my chest walls. So we've just, you know, carved into me quite a bit. <laughs> quite a harrowing five years for you and your body. It has been a lot. Yeah, it has been a lot. And then, of course, you know, as you go through that, your body changes dramatically in terms of the way that it functions. So it's been a lot, but I'm also here. And so for me, we had no cancer in our family. We had zero family history of bowel cancer or any cancer. So I had zero experience of what it was to be a cancer patient, to deal with that. And it's such a foreign thing. You know, it's such a foreign concept. You either have it or you don't. You hope you never get it and you don't really want to open the door and know anything about it. Um, And then you find yourself in it and you think, oh, okay, well, I guess now I have to learn about it. And that transition to what it actually is to live with cancer and the fact that um, that ultimately you can live with cancer and you can live with a metastatic cancer that is as advanced and you can find treatment options and you can find people who are willing to, to go after things. That's been my life for the last five years. And I think it's really interesting about empowering Mm -hmm. and you being in control of your health and you are the biggest advocate for that because you did not take the word of the first doctor or a range. You've gone, no, I'm sorry, there's got to be another option. And I know when I met you, you were on a path where you were eating very healthy, organic food Mm -hmm. and you really took that on yourself, didn't you? that you were going to be in control I did. of your health. Yes, I did. And I, I think it took me a while to, to learn this and to really comprehend this. But what, what we have in, in our human body is just one large system that we are in control of. And nobody actually cares about it more than us ourselves as individuals. And if we choose not to care about it, well, then, you know, that's our choice, but no one else is ultimately going to care about it. So I had an instinct to say, you know, I feel like we should be trying to keep me alive. Not, you know, for me, it was, you know, I'm young, I've got a brand new baby. This baby is eight months old. You know, I've got a picture of a life and, and what it's going to look like. I've got a career, I've got a husband, I've got all these things I want to do. Surely that life is worth fighting for. And I think that some people around me said, yes, of course, you know, as a young person, that is, you know, worth fighting for. But upon reflection now, five years into this journey, any life is worth fighting for, actually. And your own, that your own system, your own body, that thing that you have that 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 is the only thing that actually gets you through life is worth fighting for. But you have to be the person who owns it first. And if you're not prepared to say, this body is mine and it's worth fighting for and I'm going to try to make it happen, well, then it's very hard to, to convince other people to do so. But I think one, what I've also learned is that um, it shouldn't be incumbent on a patient to have to do that. And actually the system should recognise in us that, that you know, it, that each one of us deserves saving um, in our own special way. It's been quite an arduous time, even before COVID struck, as you have said. Yes. But talk us through what a normal month would have looked like before COVID yeah. and then how we'll talk about how COVID might have impacted that. Yeah, so I am actually unfortunately back in the throes of treatment at the moment and, and quite 
intense chemotherapy treatment. So I'm actually right back on the chemotherapy regime that I started with in 2017. We're right back at the beginning because we had a sort of a catastrophic failure, if you like, of, um, of a series of things that went wrong. So basically we've got more metastatic cancer we have to deal with. So that meant that I had to go back into chemo. So that for me is an admission to hospital to be treated on the ward rather than treated in a day centre. So some patients will be familiar with going in um, and being treated in a day centre for the day. I have to be treated on the ward for my treatment. It's a three-day long treatment and it makes me very, very ill. And because I can't keep anything down, because I can't stay hydrated, I can't drink anything, we actually have to admit me. So that process then is a fortnightly treatment where, you know, in, in preparation for that treatment, I need to have my appointment with my oncologist. I need to a blood test. Um, I need to be admitted into hospital and then I need to stay there for two nights and basically have a sort of an eight-hour treatment on the day and then a, um, a chemotherapy sort of pump that I wear for, for some hours after that um, that gently infuses some more drugs. And, and that's sort of three days out of my two weeks. Then I would go home, recover. I'm a huge exercise advocate and that's played a huge role in, in my treatment. And so get back in the exercise, um, recover, my bowel, I've got, you know, colitis, gastroenteritis, all these things that have been kind of chemo-induced. So a lot of issues there to manage and then recover in time to get back in there 14 days later. But obviously going in and out of hospital, as we know, in a COVID environment has changed dramatically. So how has that impacted your treatment? So that has been, I guess, the introduction of a whole lot of restrictions around me as, as a patient um, and also expectations as to how I needed to front up as a patient. So the PCR test obviously has been a requirement for hospital admissions and that has been sort of an ongoing thing in, in COVID really. So it, that was okay for me in the beginning. So I would rock up for a PCR test and I would find that if I got it done on a Sunday, it would be back in time for sort of Monday afternoon. My treatment was on Tuesday, so I would get in in time. Bearing in mind, of course, that as soon as I have that PCR test, I have to isolate. Um, and then also understanding that as it's someone in chemotherapy, those days are my very best days of my treatment cycle, right? They're the days where my diarrhea is actually stopped. My appetite is actually back. I feel like I can go for a run, see my friends, go out, whatever. Those are the days I had to spend isolated and by myself at home. And now getting a PCR test, how were you as a patient sitting in a car? Yeah. For that long, you know, we're talking sometimes five, six hours. And yeah, and there are some tests that I've literally driven to the other side of town because, you know, following people on Instagram to figure out where the best place is to go get a test and, you know, and, and sitting there and taking my mum with me so she can help explain as required. You know, she's had to drive me because I've not necessarily been able to drive with my chemo brain and, um, you know, trying to identify if there was a bathroom I could use or a vomit bag that I needed or, you know, and that's very, very tough um, to manage as, as, as a patient. And then, of course, you don't necessarily get that test result back. So I was going in, you know, Friday morning um, for my, you know, admission the following Tuesday and getting to the Tuesday and sort of speaking to my oncologist and saying, I don't have a result. Are they going to let me in? You know, lying awake at night thinking, 
are they going to say no? You know, should I have had the test a day earlier? Have I made a reckless choice by choosing to do my test, my PCR test on Friday so I could go out with my husband on a Thursday night for dinner because I felt a little bit better, but now I put my treatment at risk the following Tuesday? You know, like that, that's the kind of stuff that, that has been playing on, on my mind and, and I've been let in each time so far <laughs> with a rapid antigen test. Yeah. I mean, surely there's got to be a fast-track system for people who are going through this. Yeah, it's been um, – people have been – astonished to learn that people who are on cancer treatments, for example, haven't been prioritised through mm. the sort of the PCR system. How could that be possible, you know, that that people, you know, waiting to jump on a, a plane to Queensland, um, and, and kind of, yes. I don't want to be negative and I, you know, I really, I wish I was jumping on a plane to Queensland. But, um, <laughs> I know that you're an incredibly optimistic person am, and you always yeah. find the positive in the negative. That's right. So, you know. <laughs> but I still, it was still difficult to reconcile and certainly when I would speak to other people about it, how it could be possible that we wouldn't prioritise people who really, really needed that PCR result because that was the hospital's requirement. And now, you know, the evolution of that now is some hospitals will now accept, you know, a rapid antigen test. And, and some hospitals have not required, you know, some public hospitals have not actually required COVID testing at all through this period, which then just introduces a whole new dynamic and a whole layer of risk. And I'm not sure which one I prefer, to be honest, you know, sitting in a chemo ward or sitting in a, an oncology ward, knowing that people are, are put at risk because of um, the movements of, of individuals. It, yeah, it's an incredibly complex thing to to try to unpack and to try to work out what is the best way to do it um, but certainly uh, the patient advocate in me says uh, I have seen too many times the requirement the burden basically placed on the patient to carry the the risk on behalf of everyone else in the system so you know the nurses weren't required to get their PCR test before they went to work and neither was the cleaner and neither was the chef and neither was the you know um and and so to put that requirement on a patient you know with horrendous chemo side effects or you know who's 85 years old and doesn't drive you know and has to take a bus to find a PCR to you know like there's so many um complicating factors and to put that burden on patients I thought was the wrong thing to do and I'm still seeing a lot of that and I'm really hopeful that hospitals will and the system in general will start to reflect on that and whether that's the right choice. We might add at this point for listeners, you're based in Melbourne. Yeah. So Melbourne has had its fair share. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether we still hold the mantle of being the most locked down city, but it certainly feels like, like it. it. <laughs> so it's that burden and we're now seeing the impact of COVID on the health system. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be implications for people who not only have cancer but other health issues mm -hmm. along the way. Do you have any advice, I suppose, for somebody who might be going through this situation? You know, that you talk about the anxiety, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, I've had to do a lot of work with my counsellor and, and having, you know, conversations around, around that, but also with my family and the way that we think about risk and prioritise risk, you know, and, and think about um, exposure, you know, like this, this weekend, for example, my husband is going to his brother's Bucks party 
because he's getting married, you know, and and I'm meant to be going to my future sister-in-law's hens, but we've made the decision that he'll go because it's his brother and it's kind of important he's in the bridal party, but I won't because we need to make choices about risk and, and then he'll go, but then I won't see him for three nights because he'll stay away, he'll do a couple of consecutive days of rapid antigen testing and we'll give it some time to make sure that we don't expose me, that we don't expose me, then going into a, a chemo ward, you know, I, I re- an oncology ward. I really I think about that a lot, you know, and not, not just the impact um, to me and the decisions that I make about my own health, but the flow-on impact to everyone else around me. And the interesting thing, I think, about being immunocompromised in general is that people sort of think about, oh, COVID is scary and I don't want to catch COVID and wouldn't it be terrible if I caught COVID? When you're immunocompromised, it's scary to catch anything. <laughs> anything. I agree. <laughs> I'm scared of everything at the moment. Everyone talks about COVID, but I'm just as scared of any other version of coronavirus or any other flu or, you know, a, um, a bad uh, pizza that I might order. I'm scared of a lot of things and and I have to manage all of those things um, in terms of my risk exposure and and also kind of contingency planning of, of what to do if you do get sick, you know, like talking um, to my oncologist about, you know, well, what happens if I do get COVID and, and what are we going to do about that? And and he started to have a couple of patients get sick now and get COVID. And, and so what does what does that mean, you know, and how are they and how have they pulled up and, and you know, well, is that Delta or is that, you know, and it's just like this kind of it, you have to be so um, engaged in it and, and take it on board as, as a problem to be solved, I think. Yes, and going through cancer treatment at the best of times is complex, yes. but overlaying with COVID and the current environment is just, you know, another level. And you do, you have to be very engaged. You, I know your little boy, for example, starts primary school yes. um, and they're a cohort that at this point unvaxxed, hopefully mm. soon. Yeah. But does that concern you? Because, you know, they talk about children then bringing it home. Mm. And it has concerned me the whole way through. And, again, we've made decisions. I mean, I, I've found that, you know, I've got a great little group of school mums who are very much aware of my vulnerabilities <laughs> as a human at the moment and, and are very aware of of protecting me which has just been the most amazing thing and I'm extremely lucky but I I really worry about that we have been very fortunate to secure my son Joshua's first vaccination this weekend so fantastic um, that's been amazing but that was a you know a concerted effort by my mother-in-law who is a midwife and understands the risk and has been one of my champions sort of the whole way through. She just sat down on the phone and she rang and she rang and she rang um, until she found the GP who could make it work. And, and that's the kind of work that you have to take on as a cancer patient. Um, that's the, that's the commitment that you have to have to, to solving the problem and owning it as your own problem. And it shouldn't be like that, you know, but but it is, you know, and 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 so to have him go back with at least one vax was was something um, that w- that we felt more comfortable about. But but ultimately, you know, we and we've had this conversation as well. You know, should we be keeping him home for a little bit of time? Should we be waiting a little bit longer? Um, but we've got to balance that out against everything else. And I've been doing this for five years now, and I can't make that really risk 
adverse decision every single time I come to a, an intersection of, of decision making. Because else, what's the point? You yeah, still exactly. need to you <laughs> still need to live that exactly. life yeah. and have a degree of normality. Um, and especially, you know, for yourself, but your son as well, um, and his yeah. life and how he yeah. he then navigates yeah. his world because he's coming into that new, next era. Completely. And kids have had no normality, right? And, and I can sit around and, and talk about that. You know, he's never had a birthday party. He doesn't, you know, um, he's he's going to be six this year. And and so, you know, that's, but that's, that's something I think that we all relate to and all understand as, as humans on this earth, I think, in, um, in this sort of day and age in this COVID world. So it's just about the layers of, of complexity on top of that, that kind of, that come, I think, with managing um, cancer or managing any kind of acute or chronic health issue. You talk about a counsellor um, and I know I had a psychologist and I found it incredibly helpful. Do you have any advice for people going through exactly what you're going through? Because there's no right or wrong answer. Every situation is unique. I would say I would definitely think about mental health as a problem to be solved in the same way that we think about our physical health. And I think that that's just so important. And I think we need to remember also that when we have certain doctors look, look after certain problems, right? And I think that we can sort of fall into a trap of thinking, oh, well, I've got my oncologist who I really, really trust and they can do absolutely everything for me. And maybe that individual can, or maybe there's other specialties, other consultants, other surgeons, other people who we need to bring into the fold and really pursue in, in a totally different line of thinking and, and, and look to actively engage them. So that might be a counsellor, that might be a psychologist, you know, that, that might be, you know, someone completely, you know, um, a physiotherapist or something like that, you know, and and just because you've got a great medical team doesn't mean that you've got every component of your physical, emotional, mental well-being actually sorted. And I think sort of sitting down and reflecting on that all the time and saying, how has that evolved? How has that changed? And am I being served by my current team? And do I need to broaden that team? And that, you know, is, is a thing that people with private health insurance can do quite easily, but it's also a thing that people with uh, in a public system can do and are entitled to do, you know, and, and, and you know, you can go out and, and be treated by the best hospital in, in, in the country if you can if you can get to it, you know, like if that's that's your right as an Australian citizen and, and, and part of our universal healthcare system and, and and there are lots of problems in terms of regional access and um and all of those sorts of things that play into things. But I think that as much as possible, my, I mean my advice always just kind of boils down to being an advocate for yourself and and your own needs and never accepting the opinion of, of someone, no matter their qualifications and experience, um, if if that contradicts your experience, you know, you don't need to be told by an oncologist that you don't need a surgical opinion if you truly believe that you do and it's your right to get one, so go get one, you know. Um, so that that ownership is, my advice always boils down to that ultimately. <laughs> We've touched on this, but we're seeing a huge number of healthcare workers in isolation being furloughed due to the latest uh, COVID variant. Yeah. How do you see these things affecting those trying to access cancer treatment? I, you know, I, this is the this is the bit that scares me the most. You know, I, you know, I talked to my oncologist recently about you know his experience of 
of trying to get a procedure done to, to diagnose a particular cancer. But then lo and behold, we had um, COVID in, in this patient. And so therefore they needed to have their COVID treated first, even though they were really largely unsymptomatic and it wasn't a major issue. You know, they're basically sent home to be sick with COVID for a while before they were allowed to be sick with cancer for a while. And, and that's that's a terrifying thing. And that's just going to play out more and more and more, you know, when we have even, um, you know, medical professionals erring towards managing their risk via doing a lot of telehealth recently rather than seeing patients in person. Now, I always demand to see my doctors in person. I don't think it's an appropriate thing for me as a stage four patient who's really managing each, you know, each decision is so crucial. And if we make the wrong decision, we could derail the whole thing and, um, you know, over here into palliative care and it's all over for me. So, you know, my my demands of my medical professionals are also always, I want to see you in person. You know, I think it's really important we have this discussion in person and, and they've always accommodated that request. But, you know, as humans, we're also managing risk and, and in businesses and, you know, we're managing risk. And so I think, you know, that's that's one of my pieces of advice is to make sure that you see people in, in person if it's appropriate to you so you can have better conversations. You know, communication is just better, you know, face-to-face. But I've seen, you know, in, even in my own hospital, surgeries aren't happening, elective surgeries aren't happening, even some surgeries that would you would think cancer surgeries and therefore really important are considered elective and aren't happening, you know, and so therefore wards are closed and and there's just not the availability that, you know, the access points to, to get people in to, to be treated. And so all of these things, again, kind of boil down to, well, you know, what am I doing to make sure that I am really being an active kind of participant in the decisions that are being made, but also managing my own risk and being sensible about it and flagging things that I'm worried about and, you know, contacting my hospital proactively and making sure I'm really on top of their requirements around admissions. And if that's changing, you know, I kind of do that myself. I'm in contact with, uh, you know, with the hospital and and working those things out because, you know, as much as possible, if I can get some of those answers and, and understand the evolution in thinking, you know, that that's, that's, you know, for example, my hospital on their, you know, on their social media channels is um, advertising one pathway for admissions, but in practice at my particular branch of that hospital, that's not the case at all. So, you know, and so that's for me to know and understand as a patient apparently um, and to navigate and that's my responsibility, which shouldn't be, but it is. So I have to just take that on board. That, that expectation on a patient, this is your admission pathway, that FYI, you need to find that test yourself. You know, like that's the reality that we're facing. And so, you know, and, and I just, sometimes I just, you know, I kind of, would like to sort of extend that awareness to the broader public to make them realise that when they're hoarding a rat test, just the same as when I was in my, you know, my supermarket yesterday and there was not a single roll of toilet paper to be bought. And I'm standing there literally in the throes of a gastro attack um, with constant diarrhoea and all of the things that I experience as, as a chemo patient thinking, seriously, do you need to have 17 rolls of, of loo roll in in your home or could we just share you know it's just um, some broader awareness of, of the impact and yeah it would be nice sometimes yes and I I think that this is dare I say unprecedented times is, but they're not yeah. times that are going to go away they're not yeah so you know I don't need a rapid antigen test 
right now. I don't need 12. But you, who is going into hospital, do need a rapid antigen test. Right. So it, it's, it's that broader understanding. So regarding COVID, is there any other things that you think people should be aware of when they're navigating the system? I would just really encourage people to think about more the, the, the problem of, of catching a, a disease as, as, a, as the issue rather than COVID as the issue when you're in the system when you're when you've got you know i've got cancer if i if i contract an infectious disease whether that is covid or anything else that i've caught from another person my oncologist needs to solve that problem with an infectious disease physician who's a specialist in this area who thinks about okay well how have we contracted that disease how do we manage that in a in a hospital scenario on the ward how do we protect other staff how do we you know and so it's just it's a it's a broader consideration of the impact of this kind of um, health problem on an individual and on a system that that needs to treat that individual. And so when we keep coming back to yeah, but COVID, 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 it just you know it, it's it just creates this kind of I really I don't know negative energy, bad vibe, you know, <laughs> um, in group, out group of you've got COVID or you don't, and it puts me in mind of all of the problems that we have around cancer. You know, like you have cancer or you don't. You're aware of cancer and its issues and its prevention and its you know and screening or you're not. You know, and, and we need to move people out of that sort of black and white pattern of thinking into a more engaged environment where we understand that you know there are a whole bunch of diseases that we can catch and we don't want to catch them um, and there are a whole lot, bunch of people in our system who particularly don't need to catch them and so if we can do more to protect those people to think about those people just in a more collaborative way just in a more human way because that person might be our, our relative or might be ourselves or just might be any other person who we care about this because they're a human you know and, and we choose to care. Nicole, obviously through COVID, you can't have anyone with you when you're going through treatment. And if you're in hospital for three days, how did that impact you? This, I think, has been, yeah, one of the more significant sort of impacts to me because I really rely on my husband as my, uh, he's my life coach <laughs> partner through my chemo experience. And so he to, to not have him there, the idea of that, you know, to not have my mom come and visit and, um, you know, and, and provide me with food that, that she would prep for me because I've, you know, um, very often can't deal with the hospital food that I've now been eating for five years. The menu doesn't change much, actually, <laughs> over <No>. that time. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that that has been so, so difficult and so um terribly lonely for, for for cancer patients and I think you know in a way that a lot of people just can't really comprehend and and I know that a lot of you know the people who I engage with in social media are about cancer patients other cancer patients in general have spoken about the fact that this sort of profound loneliness of um, the experience of 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 cancer treatment and and whether that's they're um, just going for a scan, you know, like just rocking up and, and having no one there to kind of have a bit of a conversation with about, you know, before I go in for this CT scan or this MRI, you know, how am I feeling and what's my anxiety, anxiety levels, like all the way through to treatment. But then when you layer COVID on top of that and you get 
for example, an admission where there's a question mark over your COVID status because you haven't got a PCR result back, then they actually put you on COVID-related protocols on a ward. So that means that basically staff actively try to avoid you at all costs Ugh. because you could have COVID. And this is something I think that a lot of people don't understand. We think about COVID and hospitals and we think about these wards where people are wearing PPE full-time. That's not the case on an oncology ward, for example, where we're trying to protect people from COVID and we've really got no COVID in that environment. And then we've got a question mark over possible COVID or possible other, you know, um, infectious disease that, that might be existing in that patient. So we lock them in a room and we're only allowed to go in there if we put our full PPE on. And that process can take maybe seven minutes to happen for a nurse to actually, you know, get all of their PPE on. Um, and then he or she will come into the room, do what they have to do, try to deal with all of the possible things that might be coming up for you as a patient. And, and then they strip off all that PPE and then they leave and they try to, you know, keep that infection in the room. So when you layer those two things together of, of just sort of being um, stranded in, in your room with a possible, you know, infectious disease, <laughs> And also, you know, without the support that you need as a, as a cancer patient, that I think that's one of the more, you know, harrowing impacts of, of COVID in general, but of any potentially infectious disease in such an immunocompromised cohort of people. Finally, Nicole, I like to ask our guests what their three tips are that they would like others to take from this podcast. My first thing I think is is about it. health is a is a whole of body experience. It's a whole of system issue, right? It's not just oh, you know, am I at risk of cancer? No, I'm not. You know, melanoma is not a thing because I wear sunscreen, or you know, like I've never smoked, so I don't need to worry about that risk. Or you know, and this is how I'm managing blood pressure. Or I think that we need to think about our bodies as as a whole of system. And when we do that, then we become just a much more natural owner of our body, right? Which which then leads to my second point around <laughs> empowerment and how important it is to try to. Um, to try to achieve that as you're navigating any kind of health issue that, that you know, you are, are always going to be your biggest advocate and to, to never accept no if you don't think no is the answer. And I think that, you know, that my third point is, is just about that idea of, of being able to then say, yeah, but I'm also a person, you know, and at the end of the day, the thing that I'm doing to kind of survive and to live and to thrive and to get through this is really just about enabling my life as, as a person. And so what does that look like and who do I want to be? And, you know, and, and if that means, you know, going for a run or if that means like a couple of days ago, I stayed in bed till like 3 PM just because it felt like the right thing to do. <laughs> you know, Sometimes as, as cancer patients or as, people who are going through an enormously tough time, you know, with COVID that we just need to make a choice for ourselves. And sometimes then we need to enable our loved ones to make that same choice for themselves, you know, and, and to make sure we're giving and taking them. And I try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I think that those, those would be my things. That's my vibe. They are fantastic tips. And also 
everything that you have shared with us today. Thank you so much. Your tenacity, your positivity and the way you embrace your life and your bowel cancer head on is an inspiration. And I think sometimes we loosely say they're an inspiration, but you truly are. And for all the work you do behind the scenes for Bowel Cancer Australia and bowel cancer patients, we're eternally grateful. Thank you. And I think we would love to chat to you again on the podcast because you've got so much to say. And good luck to your son starting prep in a few weeks. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steph. It was such a pleasure to chat to you. And and yes, I'm just a, a obviously a massive fan of Bowel Cancer Australia and everything that they do for bowel cancer patients and, and just for our community more broadly and, and their commitment to, to Australians and, and getting rid of this disease. We will get there. I feel we like will. we're chipping away. <laughs> we will. Thanks so much, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.